January, New Year. Deanna and I had the privilege of going out to uh, Sacramento last week. Uh, last Sunday, we were able to celebrate with a couple of grandchildren, with uh, Bethany and her family, and it was really fun. But when you realize that the temperature difference between here and on Thursday morning was about 95 degrees, so it was uh, it was quite a shift coming back. But today we want to begin a series. And it's titled, Our Treasures, Matters of the Heart. And I want to put on the screen two verses to introduce this. The first is Luke writing in 645, and it's quoting Jesus, but look how it reads. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, a few chapters later, Luke records this in Luke chapter 12. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags. Do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, these two verses speaks to a very important theological issue. And it's surrounding this word heart. Luke records these on occasion as Jesus would would gather the people to speak to him. And he's teaching these groups of, of people that the heart in one sense, is the moral compass of our lives. It's the place where good and evil reside. It's the place where our treasures, that which we treasure, are stored up. It's the place that we have our values. Matter of fact, it it frankly defines us even in our personhood. This biblical word heart is absolutely so critical as we look to become a person who makes disciples and as we disciple others and as we learn to walk and love God. Now, I have to warn you that this uh, today is a little bit heavier, a little bit more theological, but these two words on the screen, are the, it's the Hebrew word and the Greek word for this word heart, and these two words combined, between the Old Testament and New Testament, there are, it occurs over a thousand times. It's the most common anthropological term in all of the scriptures. But here's what we need to realize, that the ancient world understood the heart in a much broader context than we do today. We, we hear that word, and for some of us who've had struggled with heart stuff, you know, we think that there's this organ within us that's beating. Well, the ancient world didn't look at, they understood the beating heart, but this term, theological term, is far broader than just the physical entity of the heart. It's the place where all moral activity, moral values are held. And the scriptures speak to it over and over and over again. Look at how uh, Samuel writes. A man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's not the physical heart. That's the spiritual heart. 
But let me put another, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and it will expose the motives of the heart. We can deduce by that that when you think of that word motive, why we do what we do comes out of the heart. Look at what Proverbs writes, 16.23. A wise man's heart guides his mouth. Out of the heart, words come out as a result of this spiritual concept of a heart. But I think in many ways we have kind of a narrow definition of what life is. And and I think some of the ancients actually had a better understanding in, in terms of who we are as people. We tend to think of ourselves as people that are thinkers. We, we focus on that which we learn and, and the brains that we have. And you think of the electronic impulses that are going across the brain's cells. But the question is, what determines the moral compass of one's life? Is it only the mind? Is it only the brain working? Because the scriptures speak of it very differently than that. And they're talking about it in the context of the heart. See, we need to understand this. If physicalness is all what it means to be human, just to bring gray matter up there, some electrical impulses, the thinking that goes on, if we define humanness only in, that ter- in those terms, what we've really done is bought into exactly what a humanist and an atheist believe. That once the body is dead and gone and buried, it ceases to exist. And yet God teaches us that there's something within us that's very different than physical. And I thought I don't think we want to struggle with that at times. Matter of fact, let me to dig a little bit here. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his image. A profound statement, and we could spend a whole week on this, but in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now here's the deal. God is not physical like we know it. There's no body. Uh, Jesus, when he came to earth, but understand God in the triune sense, there's not a body, and yet... To be made in the image of God says that we desire to be loved. The call to love others. It's who God is, the essence of who God is. And yet no physicalness. But let me push this illustration just a little bit farther. I think there's a concept even within the church that we buy into. And there's a saying that we've used, and I know I've used it as a parent, thinking when my kids were young, and let me put this little phrase up on the screen. Parents, have you ever done this to your kids? What were you thinking? Anybody ever say that to their children? I I know I did. Um, But here's the dilemma. Do we really believe that they're thinking was the cause of that moral action. And that somehow, if I could change the way they think, that my child wouldn't have done what they had done. 
you catch the dilemma. We keep believing that thinking is at the center of our humanness. And we miss out on this theological, this, this biblical issue of the heart. So, so understand this. If we believe that thinking is at the center, it assumes that right thinking then is the moral compass of our lives. And we hold on if we hold on to that. I have to submit to you, it's not biblical. See, the cognitive thinking by our brains is not even close to the understanding that the ancient world had for this world, this word heart. And yet we want to create the center of our existence around thinking and the mind. And matter of fact, even in the default for discipleship, when you think of raising kids, and we'll talk about that later, all we have to do then, if it's thinking, we just have to change their mind. So they think about the right thing, and therefore their moral compass will change as to what they do. But to dig a little farther here with you, my, uh, my bachelor's degree was in education. I was a history major. And, and there's many teachers here in our church and who've had education in their past. And, and I, you think back to this issue as I was getting my teacher training and, and to this idea of we, we emphasize learning and thinking in the books and knowledge. But you know what? I, I went to this great Christian college called St. Cloud State University. And... Um, <laughs> Okay, it wasn't that Christian. But understand this, there was never once when they connected the thinking and learning to the issue of the heart, to the moral compass of a person's life, a child's life. It just doesn't exist. Nothing was taught about that. Uh, we were taught about reasoning and, and learning. And matter of fact, in the late 70s, early mid-70s, uh, behavior modification was kind of a popular thing at the time. But nothing was about the biblical issue of the heart and as to where the motives came from as to why we do what we do. Now, I, I understand this. Do we need to think? Yes. I'm not saying that thinking is bad, that knowledge is bad. Please don't hear. Our, our mind feeds the heart. But to a large part, the heart determines what's coming out of the mind. And I'll show you that in some scriptures later. And, and I, I think at times, even in, in parenting, we default for our children. If they only learn the right biblical truth, then they're going to turn out to be spiritual giants. And folks, there's no guarantee. that It's just not true. Reason and knowledge is not, is not the defining factor in our lives as people in terms of actions and as to why we do what we do. But let me put up a statement on the screen if you're taking notes. I said it this way, a biblical reality. The mind can learn to reason but the outward actions of people reveal ultimately the spiritual condition of the heart. Our actions flow from our, this issue of the spiritual heart. Now, now, if you're a history student, I remember 
having 18th century history. And, and there was a period of, of history called the Great Enlightenment. And it pushed the whole idea of reasoning and learning. And it kind of replaced the issues of the heart and the soul in that sense. And it brought reason, it elevated reason and thinking as the kind of the, the, the top of the, uh, of the pyramid. But here's the dilemma that I think. In one sense, over the last 30, as I pondered this, over the last 30 years or so, there are philosophical and theological issues that I just don't hear people wrestling with anymore. And let me put some questions on the screen as what people don't struggle with. What is the nature of evil? I need to talk to some students and go, are they talking about this in high school? What does, where does evil come from? How do we decide what is good and what is evil? Do we wrestle with those questions? Because they're connected to the heart. Look at Mark 7. Another text, Jesus is talking. And he said, what comes out of a person um, is what defiles him for, from within. Out of the heart of man. Look at this. Comes evil thinking thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Last weekend, as I was visiting with my daughter, she's actually a teacher, elementary, sixth grade teacher in California. And I was asking her her reaction to the shootings that took place, if there was any response in her school to the shootings in Colorado. And it was interesting, um, as we was pondering that, and uh, the question I had as I pondered that situation in Colorado, do people really believe that educating that young man differently would change his moral compass? See, people keep believing that. And I go, they're missing the biblical understanding of the heart. And I think if we have to be intellectually honest, we go, no. But do we know... Do, do you know that we and our culture, we, we create this category then. When evil takes place in this world, there's a new category that really is becoming emphasized, and especially I think the last 20, maybe uh, even 20 years, not much longer than that. When evil exists, when those shootings take place in this world, all of a sudden we want to push all of that evil and that stuff into the category of mental illness into that box. Now, is there mental illness? I, I believe there is. But to push everything in there and blame that box for the evil in this world just is not biblical. See, we ignore that's within what's within the hearts of men and women and even children. See, the heart is where evil can lurk, can exist. And no one wants to wrestle with the nature of evil anymore. How many TV shows do you find it talking about? The Voice or Oprah or any of those? Do they talk about evil in this world in that sense? They go, no. Do news shows? No. 
No one wants to address this issue and the nature of sin and actually ever connect it to the heart. See, one can learn what's right and wrong, but it will never guarantee loving actions from a person. Again, let me throw you some scriptures to speak to this issue even deeper. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Some versions use the word wicked there. Who can understand it? Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Not on what he or she knows all the time. But, but here's where I, I need to dig, and just, this is the introduction for the next number of weeks. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. I want to bring out just a number of principles out of this passage that deal with the issue of the heart. And so let's just read, I'm going to read the text as we go through it rather than read the whole thing now. But Matthew 15, verse 1, let me, let me just read a few verses. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, and he did not, uh, he did not honor his father. So the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now the context here is understand that the Pharisees had elevated tradition even far above what the law would, was set, had said. And they added to the law, and, and matter of fact, there were about 4,000 regulations that covered every aspect of Jewish life. And there was very elaborate rules concerning cleanliness, and especially related to the hands. But the result of the rules, I understand for the Pharisees, they really believe this. If you believe the rules, you are a righteous, you are a holy person. Good standing with God. But the hand washing was a bit unique in that some Jews actually believed, and I found that I hadn't heard this before till this week in study, is that some believe that at night when you lay there in your bed, the, ha- the demons would rest on your hands. And if you didn't wash the hands and you ate, evil could come into your body and defile you. Now, the second part to the hand washing, and we spoke about this uh, probably a month or two ago, it's this issue where if sinners touched food or prepared the food and you didn't wash your hands, then evil could be ingested into the body and it would defile you and you would become evil. So that's what the Pharisees believed. So they're looking to get Jesus, and they they watch and they observe that the disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And they go after Jesus. But Jesus, you understand there, he goes back at them. And he goes after the traditions. And he points out this, that that which we just read. The, The Pharisees had taken their money 
Here's what they did. They, they knew the, the commandment, honor your father and your mother. But you know what? They didn't really want, they didn't care about mom and dad got old. I'm not going to worry about mom and dad. So what they did is they took the money and they dedicated it to the Lord. All of their wealth, they dedicated it to God. And then they would come to mom and dad and say, mom and dad, I just don't have any money. That's the Lord's money. So I can't use that for you. I'm sorry. Convenient way out, isn't it? So understand that Jesus is going after him here and saying, you're just, you're being deceived. But catch how, the real, how Jesus goes after these real issues as they bypass it. You understand what it's really happening as the, Jew, as the Jews, as these Pharisees are trying to get by with taking care of mom and dad. There's an application for us here that, that I got to point out that's taking place with these Pharisees. Number one for your notes, the heart has the capacity to corrupt the word of God. And the Pharisees did that. See, the problem with our hearts is that we can take God's truth and we can twist it, we can change it, we can rearrange it into a box that's to our own choosing. And all one has to do then is find a version or, or find some television preacher or whatever to explain it in such a way that the interpretation lines up with what we want to believe. And we're good to go. But I, but I think this is true on a couple of different aspects. On one hand, it can create to a, a license to do whatever you want to do. But on the other side of it, even with the Pharisees, it, was, it, it can stretch, move into the side of legalism. And you can do it in that way. But at the heart of it, it is really humanism in that man gets to determine what is right and what's wrong. And then we can justify it and we're good to go. I understand this. Think back to Genesis 3. Won't turn there. But when Adam and Eve were confronted by Satan, and he says, take this fruit, you can be like God. The essence of that fall is that Adam and Eve became autonomous creatures and they claimed the right, they claimed the right to determine what is good and what is evil? And you think about it in our day and age. See, we keep approaching the issues of sinfulness in our culture on the wrong plane. We keep the, that the, the sin that they're committing is just a moral sin. It's way deeper than that. Homosexuality, or living together before marriage, or abortion, or any sin is this. It's claiming the right to decide it. And see, it goes back to those big questions of who gets the right to decide what is evil and what's good. Now I submit to you, it's God. But we have a world that's going, I claim the right to decide good and evil. But here's the tension. Because before we cast stones at the world, we got to look in the mirror as, a, as churches, as people claim to know Christ. And over and over again, we see we can get up tomorrow morning or tonight later on the way home, we can go, 
you know what? I have a right not to love my wife today. I'm just not going to be that nice to her today because she did something to me. We claim the right. We can come into a church like this and you go, deep down, we do, we do it so quickly. Our heart does it so fast. I'm just not going to love that person. i got an issue with them, so I'm not going to love them today. See, that's claiming the right to decide. And we do this over and over again on issues. Where money should go. Where time should go. I claim the right to decide what's good, what's okay. And the heart, folks, justifies it so quickly. Let me keep reading. Because Jesus spotlights these guys and he says this, you hypocrites. You're not taking care of your parents at all. You're just hypocrites. And then he quotes Isaiah from prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he quotes from Isaiah 29 here, and he, and he tells them that their hearts are deceived, and they're thinking that they are something that they're not. And he calls them a very strong word. That word hypocrite, it literally, you could say this, it actor, pretender, is other translations of there. These men have convinced themselves that they really and honestly are walking with God. And yet their parents, uh, they're, they're not that important. They're playing the part. But it leads to a second application, I think, here for us today. Number two there. The heart is the master of disguise and concealment. That phrase, in vain they worship me. Could this not apply to us in the 21st century? We can act religious, we can go to church, we can sing songs, we can listen to sermons, we can say a bunch of amens, we can do all kinds of things teach Sunday school class, whatever, help in the nursery, and all with an attitude where the heart isn't real with Christ. That's the hard part. Our hearts can deceive us and conceal things. See, more and more we got to realize that if we're going to be a people who love God, it's about dealing with the heart. Because it comes back to this question, where are we really giving our love? Is it curved into ourselves or is it really going to God? And we're just deceiving ourselves. But look at up. Let's keep going here. Matthew. Verse 10. And he called the people to him and he said to him, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples said, uh, came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And you go, Ouch. He's saying they're not connected to God. And they're just following each other. They're real, little, they think they're following God, and they're not. They're blind. Look how it goes, though, verse 15. But Peter said to him, 
Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's trying to help his disciples understand that the issue of their lives, of even following him, is about the spiritual heart. And yet we put so much emphasis on the, our physical world and even on the mind. And Jesus flips it upside down. He says, it's not the physical or the mind, it's the heart. But let me throw out a third application here in this text that I think is here. Number three, one's heart is a window into your soul. The real you, the real me. If we take a look at our hearts, honestly, if we're not deceived, we're going to find that that's the real me. And sometimes you look in the mirror and you go, ah, oh, I don't like me. But I, but I think we fail to grasp this. And at times we're not self-aware and that the real self, by the way, this is what I think happens. We look in the mirror and we're kind of deceived and we look away from the word and we avoid it. And you realize that other people are seeing us who we really are. They're seeing the real heart before we do. Matter of fact, I think this is where it comes out. Whenever, you, whenever we, we are put in a situation where there's great pressure, where we can't control the circumstances, do you realize that is when the true heart is revealed? And when the real self comes out, it, it, what's stored in the heart is what who we really are comes out. And it might be joy, love, patience, kind words. That, that might be stored up in there in the heart. But on the other hand, things can come out like... like Anger, bitterness, hatred, harsh words, a critical spirit. See, the fruit eventually creeps out of our lives and we're known by our fruit. And we're oftentimes the last to see it. That's the hard thing. But our actions, frankly, are a barometer of the soul and a temperature of our spiritual condition. See, the Pharisees thought that if they just cleaned up the outside, that would take care of the inside. And Jesus is going, nope. And I think too often we kind of believe that lie. But the Spirit needs to work in our hearts, folks. And it has to be done by God. And our part is not always trying to figure it out, but it's allowing God to come in. We bow before him and say, God, create in me a clean heart and renew your right spirit within me. As David said those words, that's where it's at for us. 
But we need to admit that our hearts need work. Parents, I just got to go after you, though, for a second. The, the, the challenge in our children is that I know that our kids need rules and they need boundaries, but getting our children to conform to the rules on the outside has no long-term bearing on their hearts spiritually. That is the dilemma that we have as parents. Because the heart of our children, we, we try to keep our kids from evil things, but we forget that within a child, the more, when a child is born, there is a bent toward self-love, toward deep pride. There's a bent toward selfishness and self-righteousness. And there's this grip that they have as little babies come out that says, I want to be autonomous and I want to decide what's right and wrong. It starts as a child. And we got to admit that as parents. But as we pause and begin to ask God and go, God, where's my heart? What's within me? What are my treasures? See, our treasures reveal our hearts. So where we're going... This is the introduction today. Where we're going, think of those treasures that are within our hearts. They're there. Money. Time is a treasure. Possessions. Security. There's all kinds of things that we work so hard to treasure. We store them in our hearts and and we look to hold on to them. You know what? Even our kids are a treasure that we want to hold on to. So over the next, I don't know, three, four, five, six, we'll see how long it goes, we're going to be connecting the heart and our treasures and how that fits into disciple-making. Let's stand and pray.